0: Times, um, I find some muscles like infraspinatus, which are key to mm. modulate all the muscles in the upper limb. But surprisingly, what I found very repeatedly is that some muscles that, for musculoskeletal patients, should be very local, like adductor pollicis or flexor are really relevant in a neuro
1: patient. CPD health courses. Try neatly training for health professionals online theory plus face-to-face practical start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com Okay, Welcome everyone to this podcast by CPD Health Courses. We're once again joined by an expert in the field, Dr. Pablo Herrero, PhD. He's a physiotherapist from Zaragoza in Spain and he teaches dry needling at undergraduate level at uh, San Jorge, University, I hope I said that correctly, and postgraduate uh, levels as well around the world. He's developed the DNHS technique, which is the dry needling technique for hypertonia and spasticity. It's a dry needling technique to treat spasticity, which he he has expanded to different countries all around the world. We're really excited about this topic because we haven't had anyone talk about this subject uh, at all uh, on our podcast series. So presently, Dr. Herrero is vice dean of the physiotherapy degree course and director of the iPhysio Research Group at San Jorge University in Zaragoza. He is also president of of the Association for Research into Motor Handicap, otherwise known as ADEMO, the acronym for it, and is about to become a member of the editorial board of the recently created Journal of Invasive Techniques in Physical Therapy. Pablo, welcome to our podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you on our show.
0: Thanks very much for letting me have this opportunity.
1: We're going to start uh, uh, with our first question. So how did you become interested in uh, dry needling?
0: Well, uh, when I just finished my physiotherapy bachelor, one of my lecturers told me that Orlando Mayoral was going to teach the first edition of a dry needling course in Zaragoza, and he had uh, very good references from Orlando, so he encouraged me to attend the course. At that moment, I was working with musculoskeletal patients in private practice and with neuropatients for the government, so I attended the course because of my interest in pain and musculoskeletal patients. But uh, when Orlando was explaining the mechanisms of dry kneeling, I discovered uh, a link to neuropatients and some ideas appeared in my mind as I realized that botulinum toxin was acting in the same target structure the end plate at least in pain, people tend to differentiate a lot between musculoskeletal patients and neuropatients, and in my opinion, both areas should be closely related that we must consider central nervous system movement in, in musculoskeletal patients, for example, when we speak about chronic pain. But also, we must not forget that neuropatients have also a musculoskeletal system. Uh, Summarizing, I I define myself uh, as a specialist in invasive therapies, uh, which is the Spanish term for dry kneeling-related techniques, although I am aware that the term invasive in English may be more related to to surgery. What I most value from having this broad approach treating neuro patients is that it has helped me to understand uh, a lot of things related to dry kneeling musculoskeletal patients, And also the opposite. So I'm continuously transferring knowledge from one area to another.
1: Okay, I I got you. Uh, Excellent. So um, Orlando Merrell, in fact, uh, we interviewed him uh, last year about his work and uh, great work that uh, he did with some uh, um, uh, knee arthroplasty, uh, the research that he did, which was uh, wonderful. Um, Okay, so that's great. We've got your background. Now, actually, the first time that I came across your work was when I saw a video. Uh, It's on your YouTube channel, and uh, we'll put some links to that uh, once we've uh, got this podcast recorded. But I saw this video about a year ago, and I was shocked, literally shocked when I saw it, because the results were immediate. So what happened was you've got uh, a a middle-aged lady, she's sitting on one side of what looks like a treatment table. She'd suffered a stroke, I think, and uh, was sitting at the table with four plastic bottles uh, in front of her, and uh, actually to one side. And she was tasked with simply moving the bottles across from one side of the table to the other using her right arm. Now, the distance that she had to move the bottles was about a couple of feet or 60 centimetres. Now, at first, she really struggled. She, she found it hard to oppose the thumb and index finger and grab hold of the, the top of the bottle. And uh, she found it very hard to let go of the bottle even uh, after she'd, she'd got hold of it and put it over the other side. She found it hard to let go. So, what happens next is that it looks like you were uh, going to you, you needled her flexor radialis, maybe what looked like that, and adductor pollicis in her uh, thumb and in the right arm, and immediately. The effect is instantaneous, which is what shocked me. She had much better control. She had she doesn't drop didn't drop any of the bottles. She could do the opposition of the thumb and index finger much better, and a lot more coordination and a lot more confidence in her movement. How did you explain this? How, did, how does that happen?
0: Well, uh, this is a good question, as this has to be with the evolution of my thinking also these past years. When I started to use vanillin and we published the first case. I was just considering local effects on end Plate on, and considering that, I think that some way uh, draining limb would decrease excessive muscle activity of some patients through mechanical rupture of dysfunctional end plates. In this first study, we found a relevant result, which was that when performing fast movements to the upper limb, the threshold of a stretch reflex had increased significantly. This made me reconsider my hypothesis and I started to consider central effects of dry kneeling. After this first experience, I've been treating patients with different etiologies, and I've realized that it depends more on some components than in the etiology itself. As an example, uh, one of these patients allowed me to identify clearly these two components, uh, which I classify as biological and central nervous system dependent. This patient had a lot of hyperactivity that decreased for about three days after kneeling but changes in the general organization of movement remain uh, for a longer uh, for a longer period. So when we assess a patient we try to consider these two components to predict the possible evolution and how long the effects are lasting, as this is always something that the patient or the family is asking and we need to give a good reply to them. So replying to your question, I think that the results in this patient were a combination of local decrease of muscle activity but also a reorganization of movement. Because of this, we decided to start a pilot study with only two patients to analyze electroencephalographic changes and we found changes in some cortical areas that may explain this, although, we cannot we cannot uh, establish a cause effect relationship because uh, it was a reduced sample size.
1: Okay, so because there was only two people in the, in the pilot study, but you, you aim to yeah. increase that presumably. Yeah, uh, we
0: would like to, but uh, it also has a lot of problems uh, to get patients here to university to use equipment. Mm-hmm. So in the research lines, we are trying to use. Uh, other more portable um, equipments to measure, but uh, we are trying at least how to develop new lines to to study the underlying mechanisms of training, which is very important for this specific uh, type of patients.
1: Okay, okay. So you need to have more patients. That's great. I look forward to hearing more about that. So you've developed, as I said before, uh, the DNHS method of treatment, where DNHS is an acronym for dry needling for hypertonia and spasticity. So, And you've even trademarked it, so I've got a registered trademark next to it. Tell me why this is specific or unique in terms of dry needling. Uh, is it it's a protected name?
0: Uh, well, the, the idea to register the, this name or this brand is because as in other specific techniques with their own brain or name, uh, this would be useful uh, to remark uh, that it has uh, differences than when applying for musculoskeletal patients. Although I prefer to look for an acronym that uh, defines the technique and methodology and not to restrict to my name because I'm aware that new research uh, will help to develop this specific application of dry And this evolution will be the result of other people finding. So I consider this is more dynamic to invite people to contribute with uh, research. Uh, This is also a trademark or this was idea because I I have had uh, the bad experience of people that just attended one of my courses and was teaching bad quality courses causing adverse effects to patients as in other training courses may happen. Uh, so I thought that registering this trademark would help to make sure that people attending a DNAHS course would be sure that they could find a high-quality course. So this is the, the idea behind this uh, decision yes. also. Mm-hmm. My clinical experience uh, led me to define uh, a specific protocol for assessment and treatment that uh, has also evolved every year with the new findings because as I told you my hypothesis, it was very basic, but we have been finding a lot of things and we are changing this protocol. We are renewing according to the, the new research. So the latest version, which is completely updated, was uh, recently published in the book Advanced Technique in Musculoskeletal Medicine and Physiotherapy that uh, was published by Elsevier recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book has a chapter with all published and non-published data to help the reader to to get a deep knowledge of uh, dry needling in your patients. Yes. So, drain healing of muscles, in my opinion, is very dependent on anatomy. So, if you are a specialist in drain healing, you will know how to properly place the needle, how to reach the muscle, uh, how to be safe during drain healing. So, it's not just uh, putting a needle in a muscle, but, uh, for example, for neuro patients, we can apply a specific assessment and treatment method taking some considerations into account that we usually we don't usually have for musculoskeletal patients. For example, uh, we put uh, the muscle in a sub maximal stress position that would be painful in musculoskeletal patients sometimes. but uh, in neuropatients patients it helps a lot to differentiate the trigger points to uh, really know when we are achieving the result because the muscle relaxes and we are aware of this uh, relaxation. So what I mean is that uh, the difficulty for me is to make a, clinic, a clinical reasoning of which muscles to treat or how you can be more specific to drain in trigger points when you don't have some references. For example, in a neuro patient, they don't have tender spots if they don't complain of pain. You, you have to use other criteria. So it's not just putting the needle in a muscle, it's uh,
1: taking into account a proper or specific evaluation, treatment, to select, to have criteria, all these things, and being updated with all the recent research we are doing and with all the clinical experience that we find attending patients. Okay. I got you. So what you're saying is we're, you've got to differentiate uh, the musculoskeletal uh, type of patient with a neuro patient. It's not exactly the same. Uh, you're doing different assessment techniques to establish where you're going to do the needling. Now, is there any particular caution that or caution or adverse, uh, sorry, not adverse or contraindications that one should think about when treating the neuro type patients as opposed to uh, the musculoskeletal ones?
0: Yeah, uh, for me, one of the most common things that sometimes is not so often in musculoskeletal patients is that usually uh, neuro patients are taking some anticoagulant drugs. Mm. So this is something you have to take into account because for superficial muscles, it it would be a problem, but uh, for the muscles, it may become a problem. And anyway, you have to be aware of the dosage they are taking Mm. Mm. to avoid any risk. And also they have some sensitive uh, impairment. So mm. this is something also to consider yeah. specifically uh, in the first session. So mm. you have to be cautious. And there has been other um, clinical findings. It's not properly demonstrated, but I have uh, I have had uh, the possibility to, to, to share this uh, uh, with some neurologists. And they don't find any relationship bad. I always like to tell in the courses Hmm. that if a patient is suffering an epilepsy crisis, Hmm. uh, we should uh, tell the patient that uh, have a look if they are increasing or making worse because I had uh, two experiences of uh, neuro patients, although they were with pain. Hmm. That increased the the, the epilepsy crisis. So sometimes... uh, I don't think this is a contraindication, but at least we should be cautious and let the patient know in
1: a constant informed sheet or whatever. Okay. Okay, so that's interesting because I've always wondered about that one because epilepsy is uh, listed as one of the uh, relative contraindications that for dry needling. And um, I've always wondered whether that is because um, if you needled somebody and they have epilepsy uh, and they had an epileptic fit, while they had the needles in, that's a problem, okay? Now, that probably might not be a problem if they're controlled, they've not had a fit for a long time and so on or is it in fact the needling that's causing the epileptic fit in the first place what's your thoughts on that you, you were alluding to that before
0: yeah I'm not sure because I had two experiences but for example I had a very very clear experience so I was treating the quadratus lumborum uh, because of a cerebral palsy children hmm. a child uh, who had uh, back pain uh, he was uh, I think he was 20 years old so he was not a child he was mm. an adult mm. but uh, when I was doing that just when I inserted the, the needle into the trigger point mm. the patient told me okay I have felt my pain this is familiar mm. but uh, he also told me that he was feeling that in two, three, four seconds he was uh, feeling like uh, he's having a epilepsy crisis huh? but not this big epilepsy crisis this was just uh, mm. a very small epilepsy so right. I was doing this uh, intervention again and again because this was something very controlled for the patient mm. but uh, after some sessions
1: he told me that the, the amount of prices were increasing and he has a uh, very high medication so mm. we
0: we left uh, doing
1: drain Yeah. so yeah, maybe. It's the only very clear case that was really yeah. because after three, four
0: seconds, the, the patient felt this
1: crisis, so, yeah. Yeah, okay. but in terms yeah. of them, I haven't found them. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. So back to um, DNHS, what sort of patients are um, going to be helped by these techniques? Well, um, my experience all this time as a clinician, uh, as a researcher, is that results don't depend mostly on the etiology. So it depends more on the patient's characteristic. So a good assessment may help to predict uh, which patient may benefit more. I think that this technique is very good when we assess a patient and we find that the resistant to passive stretching that we could define as hypertonia, is
0: mostly from a central or neural neural origin. I mean that from a clinical point of view, uh, tests are positive when we increase the the stretch velocity. This is usually related to the achievement of good results with dry kneeling, as dry kneeling will provoke a considerable decrease of this muscle hyperactivity, and also, which is very important, a stretch reflex modulation via increasing the threshold this is my hypothesis because I, I haven't demonstrated this but this is how i think it's working okay. another important
2: characteristic which needs also further research is regarding the central organization of movement obviously this is very related to cognitive patients characteristics so usually patients that can have a high functional uh, activity and have
0: good cognitive skills and may benefit mostly because uh, they can also do other complementary treatment to benefit from the drain unit
1: effects. I got you. Okay. Okay. That's great. Um, all right. My next question, I, I'm really looking forward to the answer to this one because I think this is at the, the, uh, the heart of uh, DNHS. So in another video I saw, I saw a couple in my research uh, before this interview, also on your YouTube channel, you treat a lady who has uh, had a traumatic brain injury. She's walking along a corridor and you're obviously videoing this and so on. And we watch her gait as she's, uh, and her balance as she's walking along the corridor. It's not great. Uh, a lot of swaying. Uh, she's using her arms to balance. Uh, she's um, Her right leg does all the work. The left one is flexed at the knee and the hip. Behind her, um, and then you apply some needling to rectus femoris, adductor longus, extensor hallucis longus, um, and uh, tibialis posterior, and the medial gastrox. So you know in the leg generally, um, and the uh, the thigh and the leg. So she improves dramatically again following the dry needling session when she starts walking. But what I wanted to know was. If how is DNHS different from, let's say this patient went to a a dry needling therapist uh, that wasn't trained in DNHS method, how would they differ? Is the needling techniques, are they different themselves or are you still trying to get twitches out of the the trigger points or is it the, the muscles that you're treating and the order that you treat them that that's different? Which one is it or is it both?
0: Uh, well, I think that uh, there are a lot of things uh, to comment uh, regarding this question because sure. um, the the basis, uh, the basic part of the draining may be the same because the muscles are in the same place, the approach of the needle can be uh, the same. So, as I told you before, if you are a specialist in drain you won't have any problem to reach the muscle to drain uh safe. But when we're approaching a patients, there are a lot of uh, differences. For example, because uh, when we start to make the assessment to select which are the muscles we want to, to do dry uh, we we have to follow a, a specific um, evaluation protocol because, for example, the uh, main criteria for musculoskeletal patients, which is a tender spot in a top band, is uh, impossible for this patient. So, um, We try to use some alternative criteria like having uh, an increase in the volume in in some, uh, in some superficial muscles, or we try to make some specific tests in the vision because we can feel how there is uh, excessive activity in some points that uh, may be related to the endpoint area. So uh, if we start with a good evaluation, it would be uh, easier to find where I should put uh, the needle exactly, because what we have realized, uh, comparing with the water toxin injections, is that a physical therapist uh, needs to be very specific, because if you are just a bit apart from the specific area, you are not going to have uh, responses. But as you were also saying, we are trying to look for local twist responses as this uh, is a good Clinical indicator of uh, clinical effectiveness. <clears throat> there are a lot of studies supporting this, but we have also found sometimes some more uh, general responses like global twitch response. We call because uh, the responses sometimes are very clearly in the muscle, like a local twitch response, but sometimes the whole muscle may contract or some other muscle. So this is not so often, but sometimes we find this and independently if there is a local or global to its response. What we can feel is that the muscle relaxes just after the draining. So when a muscle has a spasticity or has a overactivity, <clears throat> we can really uh, check that the muscle is uh, being uh, well treated because it's relaxing. We can feel this uh, decrease in the in the tension, and because of that, we also do the treatment in some maximal stress position because this allows the clinician to feel a resistance and just when this resistance is uh, decreasing and apart from all these things regarding evaluation and treatment for me it's very important the clinical reasoning behind all this because when you uh, have a musculoskeletal patient you have a clinical reasoning but when you have a neuro patient you can have some other clinical reason. Although, we don't have a lot of research to support this. So sometimes uh, we can understand the patterns of pain, published as a reference to now, which muscle can be related by the referred spasm or referred inhibition. But sometimes we have found that some muscles are key, like for example, adductor policies or the first dorsal interosseus, because they modulate the whole activity in the upper limb so there are some differences, but uh, we don't have a strong evidence not to say what's happening. So this is also a, a good point to work for the, for the future.
1: Mm, okay. It, it seems uh, the way you approach the treatment for this lady was very holistic. Uh, you looked at her as a whole picture, saw her walking, you saw what the problems were and looking someone skilled like yourself can have a look at her and say, well, this muscle would probably be tight. This muscle would be uh, more relaxed and so on. And, you know, and your treatment would be focused in on looking at her as a whole rather than uh, she's come in with pain somewhere, it's more of about her function. Would that be right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that um, uh, when we face a, a patient, a neuropatient uh, the first thing we are we are doing in the protocol is to make a functional evaluation because mm. it gives you um, a general overview of which are the muscles that may be interacting more with the, the activities of the patient but what we also do after that uh, is to make some specific orthopedic tests to check, for example, in, in this patient when you analyze, you can say, okay, perhaps a Dr. Longus may be involved, perhaps a Gracilis, but sometimes it's impossible to, to realize just with functional analysis. So sometimes you can say, okay, to perform some orthopedic tests. So for example, with knee flexion or knee extension, so sometimes you can realize if some muscles can be more affected or maybe more relevant so uh what i always say to to people that is going to do drain linear patient is that usually you will find a lot of muscles to do drain kneeling because you want to decrease activity or you want even uh, increase activity because we know that it also works for weakness muscles but uh, it will depend on uh, the the patient's tolerance because if you realize that the patient is only going to tolerate one two three insertions or mm. three muscles you have to clearly set a priority of the muscles to be treated so the most relevant mm. to the less relevant yeah. but other times uh, people uh, toleran, tolerate uh, a lot so you can do a lot of healing, uh, but mm. uh, for, from a clinical reasoning you have to make functional evaluation a specific test and then uh, set a priority and start working yeah, yeah Although, nice. uh, this was a case where i only had the opportunity to treat this girl for once so this is different that when you treat a patient every week because sometimes i recommend just to treat the muscle you think more relevant just mm. to check in real life what's happening and then to try to check other muscle like um, um you are testing now the, mm. the different effects or sometimes when people improve and change the pattern of
1: movement, you, you you realize that sometimes other muscles that were not relevant are overloaded or are mm. increasing activity, so sometimes it's not so static, so it's changing uh, through the time. Well, this is a really interesting uh, conversation, Pablo. Every time uh, I listen to your answers, I think of more questions that I hadn't thought of before. So we could go on for hours, but we won't. Um, but uh, I just go back to one thing I, I note. I uh, remember when you just answered that question. So what you're saying is we've got to look for the key muscle that perhaps is involved, rather than, of course, there could be many muscles, as you say. And the and the advantage of doing that, if I'm right, is that you can treat that key muscle or two muscles and then you see whether there have been any changes the problem with treating multiple muscles 10 or more is that you don't know which one of those was the key
0: yeah so it depends on for example in my experience sometimes when i attend a course and the patient wants to be treated and to have the biggest effect so sometimes if they tolerate i treat a lot of muscles according to my priorities But in the clinical setting, if I'm going to visit them for different weeks, I try to obtain this information because this is very relevant. Mm. And sometimes um, I find some muscles like infraspinatus, which are key to Mm. modulate all the muscles in the upper limb. But surprisingly, what I found very repeatedly is that some muscles that for musculoskeletal patients, should be very local, like adductor policies or 1st are really relevant in a neuro patient. So mm. this is also a challenging uh, question for researchers because sometimes
1: we find things are like in musculoskeletal, but sometimes not, so yeah. I think this is
0: a good work
1: to do there. Great, well, which is obviously why you're interested in this subject, uh, the differences in there. So, I mean, this uh, population that you're able to help, uh, is a lot of people many people suffer brain and spinal cord injury around the world and according to uh, the journal Injury Prevention the incidence of uh, uh, total b- um, brain injury is 200 per 100,000 people or point uh, sorry traumatic brain injury I should say is about 0.2% or 200 per 100,000 people so that's quite a lot of people if you look around the world so uh it's a serious health problem for governments and um, healthcare policymakers. One of the main problems for patients uh, might well be the spasticity as a result of their brain injury, So, which, of course, is in the title uh, of uh, DNHS. Tell us about spasticity because spasticity has an important relationship to what you uh, describe and you've mentioned in your, um, in your research as RTPM or resistance to passive movement. What is that?
0: Uh, well, uh, this is really a, a difficult question to reply. Uh, I thought it was easier until I started my PhD under supervision of uh, Professor Dr. Pandian at Kiel University, because uh, he made me think a lot of, about uh, this, um, and I was surprised to discover the difficulty to, to define this phenomenon. When I refer to spasticity, I usually try to summarize as the central component of hypertonia, but it is not really like this as there are other factors contributing to it. But from a clinical point of view, I consider that the main point is to try to identify any central component of hypertonia as dry kneeling will help these patients. Although, sometimes, we don't know well the exact mechanism. One of our collaborators is uh, is doing uh, a research with, with members of my research group in Spastic Rats at Anahuac University in Mexico. And I hope this helps to solve some of our data uh, regarding these effects of draining in spasticity, and we also are developing here some some research with Doctor Thomas Soriano Toledo, uh, Physiotherapy Research Group. Uh, but uh, summarising uh, from my mind, when I just started to do draining, I was focusing a lot in spasticity because everybody was speaking about spasticity, and my concept of spasticity was really different. But now. I'm more uh, looking to, um, to the general function because sometimes spasticity can be related to the function but sometimes it's not so related and uh, clinicians usually tend to mix spasticity and to use a lot of terms like it was spasticity although it's not. Um, even in the journals you, you read spasticity uh, or the measurements of the spasticity, like the upper scale, which is not really measuring, measuring spasticity. It's measuring hypertonia because it's not considering some specific aspect of spasticity, like the velocity dependence or some other issue. So uh, I think that sometimes, even if you have this clear in your mind, when you write in a journal, uh, you have to make it also clear for clinicians uh, reading it. So... I struggle with this a little because, uh, for example, my piece my director always criticizes me when I write spasticity and all these things. But on the other hand, I, I think I have to write this to let people understand mm. this is the, like the central component. So mm. Mm. this is sometimes a bit uh, difficult for me to yeah. um, to feel the, the two yes. objectives, to yeah. let it know and to be really uh, thought of when I'm writing.
1: Mm, okay. Oh, so I guess, well, my next question is made redundant now by your answer because what you're saying now is that you're moving away from spasticity a little bit and thinking about function. Although when you're writing, you're talking about spasticity because that's the, the, the orthodox uh, explanation. So, um, let's say that forget spasticity because, um, what i was going to ask you is how are you going to measure that, that so that you can see whether dry needling is uh, is helping or not but let's say let's say that we're not thinking about spasticity at this point we're thinking about function uh, as to a degree of um how somebody has improved so you would say like in the video the one we explained before with the lady with the with the four bottles you would say that her function of uh, maybe thumb and index finger opposition has improved or ha- what's the the Uh, measurement tool that you're going to use for function yeah uh, i i I want to differentiate between the the real life or the the way of uh, like a clinician can evaluate Mm. and when you have to publish things because for example when you treat patients you can record a video you can see that the movement is better the quality of the movement is better the patient also can describe that uh, she
0: feels better, she feels more comfortable, she feels more stable. But sometimes when you move to a gait lab and you want to measure, sometimes it's very difficult to address all these um, changes, and specifically when they have to be with uh, the quality of movement. So sometimes we are using some um, scales like fuel major for upper limb, for example, or some other clinical scales, but um, they also have some restrictions from my point of view. But this is the only way we have to, to, to measure the function. So we are doing, or we are using this scales.
1: Okay, all right, so a couple of other terms that are used uh, in this um, uh, type of patient and with uh, trigger points generally is contracture and, of course, hypertonia. So how how do they differ? What what are the definitions of those with respect to perhaps comparing those to to spasticity? Well, uh, hypertonia for me is a more general term than Hmm. spasticity, including it. Because uh, hypertonia can be defined clinically as resistant to passive stretching, but uh, this resistance may come from a peripheral or biomechanical origin, uh, or sometimes it can be central or neural. So, in clinical terms, there is always some degree of overlapping of these two components. So, when we speak about a contracture, uh, it's because the tissue is shortened, we have a, a structural shortening of the muscle or the tissue has suffered some kind of uh, remodelation.
0: So uh, if we apply drain healing, we won't have uh, effect, mm-hmm. uh, except if there could be some neural component overlapping. Mm-hmm. But uh, if there is a big contractor, we won't find good clinical results. Mm-hmm. So this is also a good uh, thing because uh, I'm used to, to use this uh, technical word of contractor because. In Spanish, it means like trigger point, but when you move to English, contracture is like a shortened muscle. So mm. yeah. sometimes when, when you want to write in English, it can be a problem. Also, mm. it happens with, uh, with invasive, because invasive, we think here is like just putting a needle, but mm. sometimes invasive could mean, I think, more surgical. procedures. So yes. I don't, i yeah. really sure, but this is also different from mm. Spanish. Yeah. But, uh, we can, we can say that uh, uh, when we find a high biomechanical component of hypertonia is because uh, we have a contractor and contractor is going to need uh, other type of physical therapy treatment, mainly based on serial casting or orthosis or this kind of, or even surgery. But mm. uh, despite of this, we must consider that brain needing for these patients, uh, as we have had many cases, uh, If we treat and they have some central component of hypertonia, even with a slight decrease of this muscle activity, we can uh, help the patient very much. Because, for example, I have a lot of patients with a lot of contractors, but just decreasing the central component, they can be more relaxed, they can wear the orthosis. So this is something important to consider for people giving the treatment to these patients.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, I think that um, the, the explanation that you made there with invasive and contracture is spot on. That's what I would think of as a contracture, that you're looking at a whole muscle. But then again, sometimes that's referred to as a, with a trigger point. That's a, the explanation for a trigger point. Um, so let's have a look at what is available at the moment? Let's say we didn't do dry needling, but what is the medical treatment now for someone with um, uh, a traumatic brain injury um, and or a stroke or something like that where there's been some medical treatment? What would that be and is it, is it uh, pharmaceutical? What's it, what are the side effects for that? Because there must be um, uh, a, a lot of patients who have only that option at this point.
0: Yeah, um, well, I'm not a medical doctor, but uh, the main treatments uh, that uh, these patients are receiving, or uh, the research we have up today, are related with the uh, infiltration of botulinum toxin, but uh, also with uh, some oral antispastic drugs or even Baclofen.
1: Okay, so there's a lot of uh, medication there and uh, yeah, uh, Botox, of course. Um, so, yeah. do, do, do these things, do these drugs work at the moment? Or are uh, patients getting good results with them? Well, uh, sometimes it works and sometimes not, like other therapies. I mean, mm. I have found some cases where patients have adverse effects
0: for botulinum toxin. Mm-hmm. So, if they can receive this treatment, an alternative treatment to offer would be. And I think that it should be a good possibility. So we should work on mm. uh, demonstrating it has good effects because sometimes it could be a complement or even an alternative, like in this case. Mm. Uh, uh, for example, I, I have found the case of very affected patient with only a residual movement of the thumb uh, to communicate that when received bottom toxic infiltration, they suffer weakness for about three months, mm. embedding them to, to communicate. So, for example, for these patients, if you just do drain kneeling in this muscle, you decrease the activity, but you don't provoke so much weakness, so they can uh, maintain the function of this mm. uh, finger to communicate. So uh, I think that draining may have uh, very good and positive effects um, and I think uh, that bottom toxin sometimes works very good, although it also depends on being properly indicated and injected with precision, because sometimes uh, in the clinical setting, we, we realize that it's not uh, properly indicated or it's not uh, injected with a lot of um, precision. Mm. So um, from my point of view, healing can be very helpful for these patients, sometimes isolatedly, but uh, some other uh times uh, they can combine because uh, um, i think it's important to have open minds and consider that patients would benefit of other treatment options and this is showing very good clinical results so if it's properly indicated and applied it it can help the patient so for example uh, i would like to give you some other uh, cases or some examples uh, that randomly um, may uh, substitute botulinum toxin or even be combined. Mm. Because I think that people listening to the interview will understand my thoughts better. Uh, sure. So, for example, I was remembering, uh, if you have a look to the mechanism of action of botulinum toxin, mm-hmm. sometimes you can decrease the activity a lot, but after that time, um, for example, several weeks, the muscle is going to have uh, uh, overactivity. And again, so perhaps one possibility is to do drain healing because you can inject again botulinum toxin. So mm. this could be a, a good complement. Yeah. Okay. Or sometimes, uh, if you want to do injection in a lot of muscles, you, you can go over a, a dosage. So sometimes you can inject botulinum toxin in some muscles and do drain healing. In other, so mm. uh, I think that there are a lot of possibilities, and they should be available for for the patient. Yeah. So I understand that there is a lot of research on botulinum toxin effectiveness, and this looks like the unique option for all these patients. But when you analyze uh, this evidence, it's mainly related to the decrease of hypertonia measured with the Ashworth scale, or so. So. It's not so strong evidence from a clinical point of view. So we are starting, a, this year we are starting a thesis about a comparison of this botulinum toxin infiltration and brain healing. So I hope this helps to really know the comparison between uh, these options because in my opinion there is uh, also one thing to improve in the studies carried out with botulinum toxin for pain as they uh, usually compare a, a single treatment. This is something I don't understand because we don't work the same in the clinical setting. If you inject one single session of botulinum toxin, you are going to visit the patient after six months, but when you do dry kneeling, you do repeated treatments. So I think that the comparison should be made based on clinical application, and because of this, uh, in this thesis, we are comparing a single botulinum toxin injection with seven sessions of dry needling. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is more clinical
1: uh, approach. No? Yes, absolutely. So you're going to actually run a study uh, which, uh, about the bot- botulinum toxin and dry needling. So you're actually going to do a study where you're looking at both therapies and comparing them, are you? yeah yeah we are trying to do but uh, we are finding some resistance regarding the ethics committees because uh, we have to demonstrate that brain healing for neuro is
0: good enough to be compared so sometimes it's a bit uh, difficult mm. to understand because uh, when they compare with control it's fine but right. if they compare with brain healing it's not so good mm. Mm. but apart from all these considerations I think that we should compare not a single session, we should compare clinical protocols. Yeah. And one thing we are adding to this research is a cost effectiveness yeah. analysis. Yeah. Because in the in the end, this is what is really important yeah. to compare the cost and the changes mm. for a whole protocol, not just mm. a single session. So it's a, <clears throat> a very challenging study. Yes. And I hope we can uh, overcome all these uh, limitations, and yeah. difficulties, but we will uh, work hard
1: to absolutely. I think that's a, that's an important point. You know, when you're trying to get something through an ethics committee or a committee at a hospital or a university, that if if uh, the hypothesis is proved correct, that perhaps dry needling on its own or dry needling with um, Botox is better than Botox alone. It's, it uh, may save money for the uh, the government or the health authority in the future and, of course, improve function for the patient. So where money is involved, that usually talks quite uh, a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, because usually people, when when we publish things, they, they look at the effects, but if I would be in a hospital administration I would check the, the real cost of all this
1: intervention. Mm. And in the cost, we should consider also the adverse effects because you can count the, the money they, they cost. So this is something important. It's not just the effects, but also the adverse effects. Yeah. That it can involve money. Mm-hmm. I mean, function is really important, though, in terms of the patient, but also from a cost factor. If someone is able to look after themselves more, require less help, be less likely to injure themselves uh, because they're more stable, then that's got to be surely a cheaper option than one where they're more likely to injure themselves and, and so on. Yeah,
0: yeah. I agree with that. And there is also a, a matter of having the possibility to offer other treatments. Sometimes when you receive a treatment, they, they let you choose between hmm. two. Yeah. So sometimes it will be a good option because of your beliefs or your hmm. fears or
1: whatever. So yeah. Yeah. I think that if we can
0: work to offer new treatments Yes, will
1: always uh, be good okay just on a, on a side note uh, i imagine i have worked with a, a few patients with uh brain injuries a uh, quadriplegic uh patient i treated uh, uh well, i still treat him actually uh and, and they're so grateful i find that they are really grateful for whatever you can do for them they're a real pleasure to treat is that your experience too yeah, uh, sometimes uh, I, I feel that they haven't been
0: uh, well-treated or sometimes when they reach some kind of level, they say, mm-hmm. oh, you can more or less walk, mm-hmm. uh, this is enough, you don't need to go to a physical therapist mm-hmm. because you have a brain injury and it's not going to change. Yeah. So sometimes um, what, what I understand like the is that if we are doing uh, any physical therapy treatment, putting our hands, uh, mm, teaching movement, whatever, uh, I think that drain healing is going to provoke a big effect in in uh, biochemically or uh, with electric impulses. So in the tissue, we are going to have very good changes. Hmm. So I think that we have a lot of opportunities to combine this drain healing. But also I have to say that uh, some neurophysical therapists are a bit uh, reactive to do drain kneeling because I think they they consider uh, the, the patient so globally, and it's good that sometimes they, they forget they have a musculoskeletal system and,
1: mm. and that they have contractors and they, mm. they can be drain and to, mm. to improve the tissue and to improve the function.
0: Mm. So sometimes we have also resistances in, in our uh, Professional,
1: I think. Hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. Um. That's a great answer. Um. Okay. So let's just go back to uh, some of those patients I mentioned in your videos. Now, um, how does dry needling work in these patients? Is it going to be any different than working in a musculoskeletal uh, type of patient who comes in with you know tennis elbow? Well, uh, taking into account the evidence available
0: up to date. Uh, I can say that mm, the effects uh, may be very similar. The, the mechanism is very similar in when, when local to musculoskeletal patients, but uh, regarding the central effects is something we can uh, understand fully now. But uh, what I can summarize is that part of the effects may come from the rupture of this uh, dysfunctional implant as this will allow muscle uh, overactivity to decrease. Uh, at least for some days, we know that renovation starts after three days approximately, so it may influence the duration of defects. But apart from these local effects uh, that uh, makes the muscle to relax for some days, we must not forget indirect or central effects, mm-hmm. like stretch reflex modulation and changes at uh, all the levels of the central nervous system, as I previously commented uh, regarding this uh, lentro- electroencephalographic uh, pilot study. Besides, uh, one important thing that some clinicians don't consider is that the effect doesn't depend only on dry kneeling. I understand dry kneeling as a therapeutic window because the immediate effect is so great that uh, this may help the clinician to work intensively with the patient the next day and also letting the patient have other experiences of movement as some restrictions are disappearing temporarily. So this is a really good opportunity for the
1: patient and for the therapist to work uh, because they have like a like a time to to experience some other possibilities. Mm, yeah, that's great. I, I use that a lot uh, when I'm teaching the phrase "a window of opportunity." So, what you're providing that patient is a small window to, uh, for, from, uh, for after treating them to uh, work on more globally uh, work um, so that muscles that were related to where you've needled can work better, uh, so that um, pain may be reduced, and therefore they can become stronger or more balanced and so on. It's a really um, important uh, factor to appreciate when you're doing needling it's not just about the needling of those muscles Mm -hmm. now you agree that yeah um okay so Let's uh, ask you this question. How does a person who has spasticity develop trigger points in their muscles? Now, we're aware that, you know, your musculoskeletal uh, type of patient, how, we know how they get uh, trigger points in their muscles, but is it different for, for someone with um, a, a, um, a, a a brain injury or, or not? Well, I think that uh, they develop in the same way that musculoskeletal patients as the the trigger point is, is the same and I usually receive uh, some questions about the prevalence of trigger points in neuro patients because people usually in the courses say oh uh, do, do, do we find a lot of trigger points in neuro patient how often we are going to find them mm. so I think I'm going to put some examples to let people listen in the, the interview mm. to, to think about
0: this because we don't have data but I would like to put some ideas to let people think. So uh, firstly, for example, we know that when doing repeated movement, uh, this is a factor that provokes trigger points. So neuro patients, if you think they are always doing the same movements as they are forced to move into a limited range of Mm. of pattern of movement. So we can consider this as repetitive uh, contraction leading to trigger point development so if we think that somebody who is doing a repeated movement is going to develop trigger points we can think that in a neuro patient is going to be uh, increase this factor yeah. so for example uh, another, another one could be that we know that the possibility to develop trigger point uh, also increases when the muscles are contracting in a shortened position so this also happens much more in neuro patients or because they are contracting in, in a very shortened position. So this is also, uh, this is also increasing the, the risk to, to develop trigger points. Uh, we also know that trigger points develop if any muscle imbalances exist. Mm-hmm. And we can find huge imbalances and coactivation of muscles in your patients. So this is another thing to consider. Uh, or for example, when we speak about other causes like compression of trigger points, Uh, that we we can find that this is also more prevalent in neuro patients because if we think of a patient sitting for long periods in a chair without changing the position or loading more the unaffected size, uh, we are going to develop more trigger points, and not only in the affected side, but also in the non-affected one. So even if we consider the central causes, so when we speak about the stress may develop or may help to Activate or to perpetuate trigger points. Uh, If we think in the central nervous system and in the brain damage of these patients, we can also uh, realize that we are going to have a lack of inhibition of these descending impulses. So we are having, again, a great possibility to develop trigger points. So uh, for me, there is a good question underlying this. And this is also the definition of trigger point because if people say okay there is the same possibilities to develop trigger point what i ask myself is uh, okay but what is a trigger point because i i think that the clinical definition is very limited because although i'm sure that i'm applying right near into trigger point this definition is not valid for neuro patients as they don't uh, feel a tender spot so you have to consider other criteria that we are using in musculoskeletal patients. So because of that, we base in other indicators such as the volume in superficial muscle, or as I previously told you about the local to response. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that, uh, and I know that this has been a very controversial yes. <laughs> issue the, the last time with some publications, criticizing trigger point existence mm. and all these things. So yeah. I really i'm really sure that trigger points exist I'm really convinced of the effects but we also have to make also some criticism and to do further research because if this is an
1: objective phenomenon it shouldn't be defined only or being only valid regarding musculoskeletal patients Mm. we should define it better to be valid for any type of patient so this is something we should uh, address in, in the future because we need to have a definition valid for any kind of patient. This
0: yeah. is my, my point.
1: No, that's a good point that you make because there is a distinction is what you're saying between the musculoskeletal patient and uh, someone with a traumatic brain injury, for example, uh, because they're not going to complain of pain in their arm or leg or something. It's more about the, their function and so on, um, which is a good point. So I think that the the definition of trigger points uh, will evolve like everything else in dry needling. It's an emerging field. Uh, but, yeah, going back to whether they exist or not, um as I mentioned to you before this interview, I was talking to Dr. Salit Jaffrey last week, a researcher from George Mason University, and he um, uh, says that uh, he he's convinced that, that trigger points do exist. I don't think that there's any doubt in his mind about that, and came up with many of the, the reasons or the etiologies that you've mentioned uh, as possible causes of trigger points in a patient uh, with a traumatic brain injury. So um, I think we're on the right track, we just got to evolve and uh, with time keep open minds and continue to uh, do more research uh, as the, 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 the phrase is often said more research needs to be done
0: Yes, I, I read uh, his paper and I also had the opportunity uh, to attend a conference organised by Mayo Pain Seminars mm. uh, with mm. Jan Domeold and it was really interesting everything was explaining because i think he's uh, going deep into the real uh, mechanisms of trigger points and this is the the work we have to do Mm -hmm. if we really want to say objectively what is a trigger point we want to measure so i think he's really doing a good job and Mm -hmm. and i really love to hear his presentation and to read the the paper Uh, although when i read it I, Mm -hmm. i have to to say that some parts are really complicated, yes. <laughs> I struggle
2: with it, so yeah
0: chemicals. So I, I read again and again. Yeah, but yeah. Sometimes it's very difficult to get
1: to this uh, depth of knowledge as yes. this uh, this
0: man uh, has. So yeah, what, but but this is a good work to have people like him working on
1: this. Absolutely. You made me feel better, uh, Pablo, because uh, every time I I did a lot of research for that interview that I did with him uh, last week, and I had to have a lie down and rest after every paragraph, Uh, and then I had to be very clear about my questions to him. But he's a very smart man. Uh, uh, His CV is 52 pages long, so that gives you an impression of the man's uh, intellect. But anyway, he's a lovely chap, really down-to-earth, and uh, very, very um, uh, knowledgeable about this uh, subject. Uh, so uh, let's go on um, to another question um, so w- w- how long can the responses last so we saw the two videos or spoke about the the two videos with the two ladies with the milk bottle and the gate and the walking in the corridor do you see uh, responses that can last for long periods of time or do you do you treat these patients in the same way that you would treat a musculoskeletal patient say well I need to see you next week and or, or you know five times for five weeks or whatever how long do you see the changes lasting for
0: well this is a very good question because it depends on any patient really so the effects uh, in my mind will depend on biological and central effects as I previously introduced so I think that some example also will help now sometimes for example we find a patient that is not going to collaborate because of cognitive limitation and this patient will depend more on this biological effects because the patient cannot do any any activity, any cognitive activity, active activity. So uh, what I mean is that if he has a high activity coming from upper levels of the central nervous system, the effects will last about three days or a bit more because renovation occurs and active therapy is not possible for the patient. So we can say that the patient is going to be very dependent on Uh, The biological effects of this patient is a patient that we can treat once weekly, more or less, to respect the reparation of uh, the end plate areas. But, uh, however, effects may last longer or help other treatment. For example, if it's combined with other treatment like orthosis, it may help or it may last more. So, again, we shouldn't consider drainage isolatedly in this patient. But uh, for example, the opposite case uh, would be a patient with a high functional level uh, with not a lot of uh, spasticity or biological component or high activity coming from upper levels. So the treatment will last more as he doesn't have so much activity. And besides, as uh, it has uh, good function and cognitive skills, he's going to integrate better the changes leading to new patterns of movement. And besides, if combined with all the physical therapy treatments, they are
1: going to benefit much more so uh, there are two points here one is that dry kneeling is not always acting alone and the other is that if you have a higher level of function or cognitive skills you are going to benefit much more because of the rest of the treatment because you can integrate more Okay, so that's interesting, but moving on from how often you treat them and so on, the changes that you get, uh, the functional changes, what are they? I mean, what what can they do better following dry needling in a functional uh, perspective? Well, um, for example, it depends
0: mainly on the object. for example, if I would be treating the the first uh, patient, sometimes I do just dry kneeling to decrease activity, to wear orthosis, to let him uh, feel a bit more relaxed, but when we move to these more functional patients, uh, we try to analyze which muscles are interacting more, so we do dry kneeling, and we usually uh, ask them to come uh, at the beginning, they come uh, after one week or a bit more, so we uh, check if the changes are maintained because sometimes if they do active uh, things, they they can maintain these uh, changes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, for example, I I had um, a case of uh, spastic uh, paraparesia, and it was very good to see this uh, girl because I started to treat, for example, the hamstrings because it has a limited extension of the knee mm-hmm. but after one session he was extending perfectly and the problem for her was that she was uh, feeling some imbalances uh, when putting the
2: the foot so mm-hmm. as the pattern changed there were uh, appearing some other things so i did another treatment but only for tibialis posterior or flexor digitorum. so the next session she told me it was very good because we also made some eccentric exercises to reinforce this muscle. And for example, it was a, a very good uh, result, but she told me that now it was really good, but she felt like uh, a grasp in the, in the soul. So I checked and it was just related to the, Flexor digitorum uh, brevis in the in the foot, mm-hmm. so I did drain it in there. So it also includes. So what I want to say is that sometimes it's really dynamic. So it depends mm-hmm. on the patient. So a patient mm-hmm. with a very high function, it has more possibilities to be more changing or more dynamic. But sometimes people with a are very contracted or
0: very affected, uh, this is like a treatment to maintain to. To, to
1: avoid uh, some other adverse okay. effects, so, I think. Okay, okay, so that's great. Um, now, looking at wider uh, outlook here, and um, if you're looking at uh, if dry needling was adopted uh, more commonly in the healthcare setting uh, with these patient groups, uh, then the money and the healthcare burden can be saved by reducing the cost of help and support for these patients. What do, do you think that's going to be a, a strong argument? Do you think that's going to be something that is going to push your case for um, uh, allowing or integrating dry needling into the treatment of these patients? Yes, I'm sort sure of this because currently the economical
0: issues are very important. But apart from economical consideration of uh, dry needling, uh, I think that having another alternative to a to patient is important, and sometimes patients prefer training to other treatments like injection because of their village or previous experiences. Yeah. So uh, because of this, we are trying, as I told you, to do a cost-effectiveness study to be able to to tell the authorities that we can save money or at least uh, to, to put numbers to what we think because perhaps we can be confused and, and it's not so cheap because we need uh, many more sessions. But uh, sometimes um, these studies needs to address the number of sessions, the, the real effects at different points of the study
1: uh, to define which protocol could be better from a cost effectiveness uh, study, but also uh, to consider if there are some adverse effects because they cost money. So, and apart from that, they are affecting people. So this is something important, not only economically, because if you have adverse effects, although they are not very big, you are treating people, so this is something also uh, to consider, I think, and something this is not very uh, considered from mm, this mm.
0: medical perspective, I think.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, you've told us about the research that uh, is important to do in the future. Tell us about some of the research that you've done in this area so far. Well... Um, I come from the, from the clinical setting so because I, I've been working for the Spanish government as a clinician
0: until uh, 2009 so I'm relatively very young for research so I'm making a great effort and also my research group are people with uh, which is very young but we are really encouraged to, to change things and to have a very good uh, clinical approach because all of us uh, combine the research and the lectures with clinical. So, for example, I treat patients uh, 10 hours a week, more or less. Okay. So I think this is also going to give us a, a good clinical approach to change uh, some things. So, although we don't have a lot of uh, things published up to now, um, what uh, we have is uh, three studies, studies and studies and and the review of uh, electroencephalographic activity. Only that, only in in two patients. Okay. Another is a case study about the measurement of dry kneeling uh, spasticity with uh, or the resistance of movement, or how you want to call it, with uh, attention myography, Mm -hmm. because we want to really measure the changes in the muscle, the contractive properties of the muscle. And the other is a pilot study about uh, upper limb function, but they are still under review. So I hope they can be for the end of this year. But apart from this study, we we have started some others. So, for example, as I told you, we are doing a study of brain healing in rats with spasticity in Mexico Mm -hmm. because we want to to know if rats behave in different ways, if they are with a normal uh, central nervous system or with spasticity because perhaps this uh, allows us to infer some conclusions for patients. Or we are also doing the, we are also measuring neurophysiological variables like a stretch reflex to try to understand which are the underlying mechanisms of dry kneeling in neuropatients. Um we recently had a, a publication in pain mm-hmm. about pain thresholds, and we are also studying this in, in neuropatients because uh, we don't know many things about pain thresholds and and the sensory profile of uh, neural patients, so uh, this is also a, a good line and also the the key study for me is this uh, comparing botulinum toxin because I think that if we can work seriously comparing botulinum toxin and studying the cost, this can uh, involve a real change in the clinical practice so I'm really committed uh, to do this study although we are financial
1: resistances, as I told you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. It's very exciting. And as you say, you're a young man. You've got many years ahead of you. So we're uh, looking forward to uh, hearing more about your uh, research. It is very exciting uh, field um, uh, to uh, be involved in and to hear that dry needling might be able to help so many people uh, that don't really have a lot of uh, other Uh, options as far as treatment goes not many choices as you say Um, where do you see your work going over the next five years what are your aims and goals for dnhs well uh, my aim is uh, twofold so i I consider my
0: perspective as researcher but also as clinician so as a researcher uh, i want to know how dry healing is working to design better protocols of all these studies about the neurophysiology the mechanisms underlying right kneeling, and also compare its clinical effectiveness and cost with other existing therapies as bottom and toxin, as I think this can be a very worthy option uh, for many patients. Hmm. But uh, on the other hand, as a clinician, uh, when I'm treating patients, I this always helps me to reconsider my way of thinking, because sometimes uh, you find something you don't expect and we have to be open-minded to try to take this clinical experience to research and solve these questions. So I have some perspectives, but my daily life will give you more clues or more ideas to to orientate this uh, research. So uh, one of my objectives will be that also a lot of people in the world could be trained in this specific area, so they could offer their patients a good treatment and and also encourage them to work together to develop more research in this area. Because as as I always uh, say in my courses, uh, I try to to encourage them or give the opportunity to to do research to to clinicians, because usually people attending the courses are clinicians and they can treat a lot of patients. So sometimes I think the challenge is to, to mix clinicians treating patients properly, and with a good protocol and researchers on the other side, uh, supporting, uh, writing, designing, doing statistics, all this stuff that clinicians don't usually like a lot. So because of that I created this international uh, research group because I I take the opportunity to invite people when I go to different countries and this has been working well in, in some countries like Mexico, And and I hope that possibly in in Kubernetes I have also a PhD
1: student from there. So I think that we have to mix clinical and research point of view. So this is my my way of thinking. Yes, uh, that's very forward thinking, a great vision to have, uh, Pablo. Well, look, uh, thank you so much for your time today, Pablo. I know that you've uh, provided us with some great insights, a lot of information, a lot of technical knowledge and uh, your time, of course. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for this interview and to wish you well and every success in your uh, clinical work and, of course, in your research. Pablo, thank you very much.
0: Well, thanks to you. I, I really learned a lot from this interview as you made me think and put some of my thoughts in, in order. So I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much and I hope we can see in future years and we can say how things have changed so much or how perhaps some of our thoughts were uh, were not uh, appropriate. And Because this is what it has researched. You have to to check things, you have to have new ideas, so I think we have to to be open-minded and to be also very critical with ourselves. So I, I think this is also a good opportunity to have this interview and also be contacted with English uh, speakers because I have a lot of influence in Spanish-speaking countries, but mm-hmm. when, I, when I moved to English countries, uh, now I feel a bit more fluent with my English, but when I started, <laughs> I was struggling. Although you you have realised my Spanish accent,
1: (laughs) (laughs) no look, I I can I can honestly say that your your uh, English is much better than my Spanish. So um, (laughs) all the Europeans, I was brought up in the UK, and all the Europeans across the Channel speak more than one language. And embarrassingly, I can uh, only uh, speak English and Arabic, but uh, not any European language. So you've done very well and I'm sure that uh, uh, you uh, will uh, go on to influence more people in the English-speaking world.
0: Okay, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Pablo, and good night. That was Dr. Pablo Herrero talking with me about dry needling for spasticity and hypertonia. If you'd like to get access to the rest of this podcast, plus other great interviews with world experts in the area of dry needling and myofascial pain please log into your account at members.cpdhealthcourses.com forward slash login. Now, if you're not a member, I encourage you to join the CPD Health Courses membership site, which gives you access to hundreds of hours of content, including over 60 hours of dry needling video training, business coaching advice, useful documents like dry needling consent forms, and even staff training scripts, plus a lot more relevant content that's available as online programs to listen to at any time or downloadable PDFs. And in addition to these resources, I'm available on the membership site too. I'll answer any questions that you might have about clinical practice and running your healthcare business. If you'd like to join the membership site, please visit cpdhc.com forward slash video training. Membership is either monthly or annual. My advice is to get the annual membership price, which gives you a great discount on the monthly subscription. So visit cpdhc.com forward slash video training to find out more. I look forward to seeing you on the membership site and helping you achieve your goals as a healthcare practitioner. I'm Wayne Mahmood, and you've been listening to a cpdhealthcourses.com podcast. Thank you for listening. CPD Health Courses. Try needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face practical. Start your training today at
2: cpdhealthcourses.com.